Let's pray. Father, um, some of the most effective lies are half-truths. And Satan sings that song, a song that frankly is true, that we are cursed and condemned apart from Jesus. And we have had buckets and buckets of that truth delivered to us these last few weeks. Lord, thank you for the news that we're going to hear today, that Jesus saves. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I have a love-hate relationship with the writers of the TV show 24. <clears throat> Any 24 fans here? All right, three. Uh, I can see I'm in great company. Um, but the reason that uh, you, you may, even if you don't watch the show, you may have heard the name of the hero, Jack Bauer. And the reason that I, <clears throat> I hate this show is that while Jack is out there making decisions that are, that, that are illogical, um, he's protecting the Constitution of the United States uh, and also the people of the United States, but he's doing it uh, with ways that, that you just have to wonder, man, is the guy, is the guy sane? I mean, he's, he, he's doing all of these wonderful things, but while he's doing it, the people that you get really attached to in this show are getting killed off one by one. I mean, constantly. The only thing you know about the sh show for sure of 24 is that if Jack Bauer, played by Kiefer Sutherland, is dead at the end of the show, he will be resuscitated at the beginning of the next show. That's the only thing you know. I mean, all your favorite people die sooner or later. You just come to expect it. And in fact, if this show, if this were not the last season of the show, I'm sure all of the fans, excuse me, this being the last season of the show, if it weren't going to be for a movie that's planning to be made uh, about uh, Jack Bauer in 24, certainly played by Kiefer Sutherland, I am certain, as all the fans would be, that he would be dying at the end of this season, which would be awful. I made the horrible mistake in the last service of uh, telling the most recent person who's been killed off about two weeks ago. And, of course, in this day of TiVo, some people are behind, and I was... Accosted after the um, after the service. It's the only show other than sports that I talk to. Sports, I'm constantly reminding the ref of his duty to make the right calls and to avoid the bad ones. But in this show, I'm saying it's a trap. Don't do it. Don't do it. I don't do that any other show, but I, I'm into that one. It's a sad, sad show. Week in and week out. It's just like there is no redeeming thing in this except that we go on living normal lives while Jack Bauer protects us but it's awful for him you know I think people a lot of times look at life that way I mean it's just sad life is sad you start out full of hope and energy and it just comes at you every which way possible and finally you begin to think well life is hard and then you die we become so accustomed to bad news that we begin to think that the best we can do is just survive this life and hope that things will be okay. Now, for the Christian, you're looking to the future. You have a hope in Jesus. You have a hope for eternal life that those who don't know Jesus don't have. And that certainly brings about a little different perspective in life. 
But even for the Christian, it's easy to become fatalistic and say, well, things are just going to be so bad that I, I just got to get by until finally that day comes and then everything will be okay. It's not that we say God is sovereign. It's like, well, it's just, you know, God is sovereign and apparently he's deemed that everything's going to be bad. And so I'll just get along best I can until one day life will be good again. You know, for three weeks we have absorbed this very bad news that David sang about. That in our sin, we are condemned. Apart from Jesus, we have no hope of a relationship with God. The fact that we inherited sin that began back in the Garden of Eden, it was passed down to us. We had nothing to do with it. And that that sin alone is enough to keep us from God. And to, and, and to condemn us to an eternity in hell, that's bad enough. Then we go in and, and prove day in and day out that we are those people that God says we are. We're sinners. We begin to understand as, we, as we're working our way through Romans <clears throat> that we'll never be good enough for God to say, you know, you had some problems when you were down on earth. But by goodness, you tried hard, and I'm going to let you in. Come on in to heaven. You know, we're not going to be standing at the gate wondering. Peter's got nothing to do whether we get in or not. It's either based on Jesus or it's not. None of us will ever get there hoping we're good enough. There's absolutely no chance of that. If we are going to... To have any hope of a right relationship with God, something has to be done. Something has to be done. Well, thank God it was done. It was done in the cross of Jesus. What John Stott calls the central point of all history. It's the, it's, it's the turning point of everything. Now, if you understand the resurrection to be that, I'm, I'm with you. It's all wrapped up together, the cross and the resurrection. But without the cross of, of Christ, where Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, there would be no hope of life. Was the cross necessary? Absolutely. Was the cross painful beyond anything and costly beyond anything that we can imagine? Without question. We think about Jesus in the, in the garden begging God to let this cup pass from him. And the Father saying, I'm sorry, this is the only way. And, 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 and if we're not careful, it's easy to think, well, the Father's, you know, just kind of stern. And, and, and here his son is who's perfect. He's never done anything wrong. But can you imagine the agony that the Father had when he said to the Son, this is the only way. It was costly beyond our wildest imagination. Is it good news? Equally, yes, beyond our wildest imagination. When we stand before Jesus, justified, right with the Father, prepared to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to the new heavens and the new earth, we will understand at a level that is a million times greater than what we understand now. No wonder we'll fall on our face and worship the Lord because of the cross, because of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation chapter 5. We 
will worship. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our text today is Romans 3, 21 to 26. We're going to begin in verse 20 to set the stage for all that follows. 20 sort of summarizes everything that's gone before, or at least from chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. And then we'll move into the incredibly good news The gospel of Jesus. Would you please stand for the reading of the word? I will be reading from the English Standard Version. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would burn these words into our hearts, into our souls. May we be grateful for the cross and may it compel us to go forward to share this good news with others. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great uh, theologian from the early to mid-20th century. And he had this to say about Romans three twenty-one to 26. I'm convinced today, after these many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important in the Bible. Now, just think about that. Those are pretty strong words from such a prodigious student of Scripture. But Barnhouse wasn't the first to use this kind of language. Martin Luther called this section the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. It's not surprising that these Great theologians would say something of this nature about these verses because they describe the crux of the gospel. The gospel that was promised in Romans 1, 16 and 17 and for which Romans 1, 18 to 3.20 has prepared us. In fact, has called us to cry out for some hope for our sin. The crux of the gospel, that, that's an interesting term, crux. We take it to mean a vital or a pivotal point. It's the thing on which everything turns and ultimately rests. But that's not the way it was used in the beginning. It comes from the Latin. And it used to mean a scaffold or a cross used in execution. The cross of Jesus is the crux of the gospel because it's, it's by the cross that the miracle of righteousness for sinful men and women becomes a reality. For these past three weeks, we have talked about the ruin of man. And it's so good to finally be, to, talk in a, to start to talk about redemption. We've talked about the ruin of man because 
of sin, both inherited sin and the sins that we commit that keep us apart from God. These last three weeks probably have seemed rather long to you. Believe me, they have seemed long to me as well. And the reason we've spent so much time on it is because it's what the Apostle Paul did. The book of Romans, which was really a letter, it was a letter that was three or four times as long as the typical letter of the first century, was presented as an apologetic for the gospel, an explanation for the gospel. I mean, all of Scripture is the gospel, but Paul systematically and very thoroughly covered all the points of the gospel in the book of Romans. We talk about the Roman road because it's all here. It's everything that you need to know about being a Christian is all here, although we sometimes will jump all over creation getting to uh, that Roman road. It kind of starts here and comes back here and it's all over the place. But Paul spent a great deal of time laying out the case for sin in the book of Romans. One thing that we can say that we have learned without question from Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is that no one will be justified by the law. or No one will be justified by his or her good works. The law requires righteousness, but all it does is to ultimately show us that we can't be good enough. We can never keep the law at the level that is required, which is absolute perfection. And that's redundant. That's how verse 20 concludes the whole section. Uh, bad news. Here's the law. Tells you how to get to God. But guess what? You can't keep it. Or here's what God expects. Here's the, here's the standard. So sorry you can't keep it. Now, if you were reading the Bible for the first time, you'd gone all the way through the Old Testament, gone through the Gospels, the book of Acts, and you had gotten the gist of what was being said. It's not all really clear to you, but in fact, the teachings of Jesus are really kind of difficult. You know, you, the Old Testament's pretty, pretty well laid out there, at least you think it is. Then the teachings of Jesus, and, and you see what happens. You're beginning, the gospel is taking shape in the book of, of, of Acts, and actually it's stated very clearly, but not nearly as systematically as it is here in the book of Romans. And then you get to Romans 3.21, it's going to seem a little bit strange to you. We're required to be righteous in order to receive God's favor, but we can't be righteous enough. Now, the righteousness of God Himself has been extended to us. And it comes apart from the law. It doesn't come on the basis of the law. It comes completely somewhere else. This truth was spelled out. It was declared in the law and the prophets, but people weren't looking for it. You know, we, we see what, we, what we're looking for, don't we? We do that over and over and over in life. We see what we're looking for. That's why when my team is playing, the ref is always making bad calls. I'm not, I'm not seeing the same, same things he's seeing. I'm looking for something and I'm finding what I'm looking for. And even though it was declared in the law and the prophets, somehow people missed that salvation is by faith. We're going to hear the next week or two about Abraham believing God. That was what counted for righteousness to him. And it was said so in the Old Testament, but we missed it. The law became so big. 
that we had to find a way to keep it. And the Pharisees <clears throat> took this law and they expanded it like crazy in some places and they shrunk it in other places. They fit it to themselves so that they could keep it, which is why Paul could say in Philippians 3, before the, before the Lord, I was blameless with the law. They, they, they worked it out to where it could, could happen. But the Old Testament said over and over, you can't keep it. You're not good enough. In the same way that people missed it in the Old Testament, people miss it today. They miss the simple truth that God's righteousness is given to those not who keep the law, not who do good things, but to those who put their faith in Jesus. People have funny ideas about how to get to heaven, don't they? There was a relative in our family, and I used to speak with a, a lady who did not put her faith in Jesus, but thought that people got to heaven on the basis of, of their own righteousness, of their own good works. But of course, we all have our ideas about what's a good work and what's not a good work. And I'm sure some of you have heard me tell this story before, but this relative often tell me about this lady down the street and she'd say, she's going to heaven. Surely she's going to heaven as good as she is to cats. So I'm thinking the money pennies are in good shape. They're first in line if we're basing it on my relative's assessment of what constitutes good. Who deserves to go to heaven? Nobody. The end of verse 23 and then <clears throat> 22 and then verse 23. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that by now in our study of the gospel, don't we? That, that none of us meet the standard. But then there's the wonderful, incredible, unspeakable good news in verse 24. Those same sinners are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not that some get close to the standard and some don't. This used to be a popular way of, of describing how we all fall short. People would set a mark way up here and they'd say, this is the standard of perfection. Now, you know, I may be way down here, Billy Graham and Mother Teresa may be way up here, but look, they fall short. It's a poor analogy. You know why? Because none of us reach the level of the floor. We're beneath the floor. I mean, look, if you try to jump the Grand Canyon and I jump 10 feet and you jump 20, we are both so ridiculously short that there's no hope. We're just, all of us fall completely short. Of the standard required for eternal life, which is perfection. And there's a price to be paid for our sin. And that's death. In eternal death. A living death, but an eternal death. Verse 23 says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And then verse 24 says they are redeemed by the amazing gift of God's grave. Grace, who? Everyone? No, go back to verse 22. The righteousness of God comes to those who have faith, to those who believe in Jesus Christ, and to all that His name represents. 
Why would anybody not believe this good news? I mean, if you hear it, why would you? Well, first of all, people just don't understand. They don't get it. In my experience, most of the time when somebody gets the gospel, they believe it. But their eyes are blind unless the Holy Spirit opens our our heart and our minds to, to understand and then receive the gospel. It's not happening. But secondly, pride keeps people from it. Pride keeps people because when you talk about trust in Jesus, it takes the spotlight off of my good works and puts it squarely on Jesus. And you think, you look back and you say, I can't believe you, please, when you're looking at this. and and, Look, remember, you walk in in light. They walk in darkness. You forgot what it was like to walk in darkness and to not see things as clearly as you see now. Unless the Holy Spirit brings us to that place of repentance and belief, it's not happening. Isn't it awesome to rejoice like we did last week at the baptismal service? I mean, you know, the the applause doesn't happen just because it's expected. It's spontaneous. You just want to rejoice with those who say, I belong fully to Jesus. One of the things that this study of the gospel ought to do is to get us out there sharing the good news so that we can be rejoicing more consistently. Now, I know that that God is going to save whom He will when He will. But I can tell you this, if we're not sharing the gospel, the people we're not sharing it with are missing the good news. And we certainly are not going to be rejoicing as a body. At the level that we would if we were sharing this good news. It's the way God designed it. It's the way he designed the gospel to be spread for us to tell it. So by all means, let's be doing that. So all you have to do is say, I believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Right? Yes and no. We've said repeatedly that one must repent of his or her sin before becoming a child of God. And, and before you're in a place to trust Jesus. It all is wrapped up together, repentance and faith. <clears throat> True repentance and faith in Jesus. We talked about what repentance means <clears throat> last week. Excuse me. So what does it mean to put your trust in Jesus? Well, that's explained in, in verses 25 to 26. You have to believe that God made Jesus a propitiation for sin, and then put your trust in that by his blood. So that's what it means to believe. Now let's pray and be dismissed. Or let's stay and talk about what propitiation means. No, no doubt you were aware of the controversy about whether the Greek word hilasterion refers to expiation or propitiation. It should be translated which way. You familiar with that? I know you are, Chad. Yeah, of course. Of course you are. Here's the difference. Expiation refers to the removal of sins as in God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And hallelujah, that's a part of what God does for us. For our sin, expiation. He, he, He removes our sin. He covers our sin and removes them so that they're no longer in play. But the word propitiation carries an even weightier meaning with it. It literally means appeasement. Or satisfaction, as in God's wrath against sin is satisfied. And it means even more than that, as we'll see a little bit later. 
<clears throat> we don't like to think about God being wrathful. In fact, <clears throat> maybe we make too much out about too much of the wrath of God since it's only mentioned five times in the Old Testament. No, wait a minute. That's 585 times it's mentioned in the Old Testament. 585 times the wrath of God is mentioned in conjunction with His displeasure of what's going on on the earth. And human beings are always involved. As we have seen to this point in Romans... Paul is clearly building his case for the need of the gospel on Old Testament scriptures. He states unequivocally in these first three chapters of Romans that God's wrath is continually being poured out on mankind because of his sin and that God's wrath will be ultimately stored up. It will be stored up and ultimately poured out on the final day of judgment. Furthermore, Jesus himself spoke about God's wrath abiding on the lost in John 3.36. And there are 22 times that the Gospels record. Some of those are the same instance, but 22 times that the three Gospels, the first three Gospels record Jesus talking about hell, eternal punishment for those who are not rightly related to God. And when he describes it, he describes it very graphically. For wrath of God is not only real, it's clearly stated in Scripture. <clears throat> and we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. We just want to talk about your best life now. You know? I'm sure that one of the reasons that we don't like thinking about a righteous God and a God of wrath being one and the same is because we so often see the wrath of man Revealed in an irrational and uncontrollable rage. But remember, God is perfect. His wrath against sin is unavoidable. If I were to say to you, hey, I can get you the car of your dreams. For some of you, that's a luxury car. Others, it's a sports car. Technically, this is illegal. But nobody has to know about this. It's, what do you... You think I'm crazy? Who do you think I am? I'm not going to do that. My character won't allow, my integrity won't allow me to do that. You'll slip a couple of packets of Splenda in your purse, you know, at the store, or, I mean, at the restaurant, or tell little lies, or your pocket. I'm not just picking on the women. <clears throat> Even though they did eat the apple. For, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, or, or you'll tell little lies that aren't little at all. They're really not little at all. But we all have different standards for what is acceptable and what's not. See, the problem with you and me is that we're inconsistent in our righteousness. God is perfect. In fact, He is so, so perfect and holy, we really can't describe Him. The best we can do is say holy, and it just literally means other than. God is other than we are. He's so high that we really can't describe Him. And it is impossible for the holy, perfect, righteous God of the universe not to pour out His wrath on sin. And that, unfortunately, means on sinners. But 
Jesus absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. He drank the full cup of God's wrath. He was begging to avoid that. He understood that in the garden when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. He understood that cup to be the cup of God's wrath that the Old Testament talks about being poured out on the nations or on his own people, even Israel, who were not his people in their sin and rebellion and their refusal to believe him. Jesus wanted to be delivered from drinking the cup of of wrath, but there was no other way. And so when he died on the cross, when he hung on the cross, bearing my sin, his blood became a propitiation. That which satisfied God's wrath against sin, not only it satisfied him, it didn't placate him for a time, it exhausted the wrath of God against my sin. Done. No more. He has this wrath against me. Because Jesus took it. He was able to bear God's wrath because of his perfect life. Jesus fulfilled every single point of the law. He was the only human in history. And he was God and human. But he was the only human in history who was eligible to to walk right into eternal life on the basis that he kept the law perfectly. But rather than doing that, he offered himself as a substitute, a sacrifice for my sin. When God accepts Jesus' death on the cross, As a substitute for my eternal punishment. He remains consistent. He remains true to his character. He is able to be just. And holy. And righteous. And yet at the same time. The justifier. Of those who believe in Jesus. He can't be just and say. You know you've sinned. But come on in. I'm going to let you in. But when the wrath. The righteous. And the right. Wrath of God is poured out on the perfect lamb, spotless lamb of God. And I say, I receive that payment for myself. He became my sin. I become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes no sense whatsoever. It's almost overwhelming, isn't it? We could easily spend a whole year talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. As we move forward, it continues to be the center of everything. It's the center of the Christian life. That's, it's not only true for salvation, it's, it has to be true for our sanctification. God is constantly calling us to die with Jesus on the cross. And, it, and death is, crucifixion is always painful. The, the physical pain was nothing compared to the father turning his, his face away from the son. It's, it's painful. But real life never happens apart from the death of Jesus. Before we come to the Lord's table... In fact, if the elders would come, I'm going to read this definition one more time of our our gospel. 
of uh, our definition of the gospel. And it begins to make more and more sense as we learn more and more about God's incredible plan. The just and gracious God of the universe, in response to hopelessly sinful people, sent His Son, Jesus, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we can't, to bear His wrath against sin on the cross, and to show His power over sin and the resurrection, so that all who respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe in Jesus will be reconciled to God forever. And that death on the cross that absorbed the wrath of God, the blood that became a propitiation for sin, a satisfaction, an exhaustion of God's wrath, we remember this morning. Uh, Bert Wallace will lead us.